it's not printed, I'll tell you, how disciples are made. In John 17, beginning in verse 6. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, once again we come before you. This time we ask that you'd help our our hearts to be open to the voice of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. We marvel, Lord, as we see and hear now Jesus praying to you. That mystery, God in human flesh speaking to his Father about his disciples and also the things that concern us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand and to rejoice In Jesus' name, amen. This just in from Jerusalem. To Jesus, the son of Joseph, Woodcrafter's Shop, Nazareth, from Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem, subject of the letter, Staff Aptitude Evaluations. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests And we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable. He's given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership whatsoever. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, definitely of radical leanings. They both registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contact in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your comptroller, and your right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Now, it's true. The men that Jesus chose and had around him as disciples were an odd mix, strange characters, and would defy logic to the natural man the world in evaluating them would not have chosen them, especially the way they were mixed. After all, a tax collector and a zealot on the same team could be volatile, be like a Zionist and a Palestinian working together. And then James and John, these two sons of Zebedee, as Jesus called them, sons of thunder, who love to call fire down from heaven every time they don't agree with someone. Yet, these were Jesus' disciples. He chose them. They followed Him. They received His words. And they were very, very effective in what Jesus called them to do. 
They were His twelve disciples. Now Jesus prays for them in these verses. And beginning in verse 6 all the way down to verse 19 is Jesus' prayer for His disciples. Beginning in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. They have received them and have known surely that I came from you came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. These verses answer a very important question. And the question is, how does discipleship work exactly? How does it begin? How does it continue that we follow Jesus from the day we accept the Lord until the end. We watch many people each week make decisions to follow Jesus Christ. It's exciting. But some of them have questions. In fact, when we have an altar call, I sort of look into their faces from up here, and they sometimes have a bewildered look. Some of them are very contrite, and there's this obvious repentance, but some of them are like, how did I get up here anyway? I had no intention of walking forward when I came to this place this morning, and here I am. Now what happens? How did I get here, and what's going to happen to me afterwards? How does discipleship work exactly? We're going to look at that for a little while in these verses this morning. Know this, however. Some of these truths in these verses are very controversial. Great men and women through the centuries have argued either side of these truths. You see, on one side, you've got the people who lean radically that it's all God and His work in salvation. He chooses, He draws you irresistibly to Himself. We call them Calvinists. On the other side of the argument, you have what we call the Arminianists, who believe that it's all man's choice, all man's responsibility. And these two often pit against each other and have the most fascinating arguments. We shouldn't polarize in these issues. We should harmonize simply because the Scripture does. They are truths that might seem opposite, but they are not. Look at it like a suspension bridge. In a suspension bridge, you have forces that are pulling opposite to each other. And yet it's because of that pull that that bridge stands. So you could lean one direction or the other, and the Bible brings both of them together. Unfortunately... There are Christians who just love to argue. They love to take a point. They love to take an issue. They love to just focus in upon one little thing and have little sword fights with other Christians about them. And that's unfortunate. Theologians can often do this. They'll write whole diatribes on why everyone else is wrong but them. And these men are sometimes like porcupines. They have many fine points. But try to get close to one. It hurts. So first of all this morning, beginning in verse 6, we want to look at how discipleship works. And first of all, we notice that the Father reserves. The Father reserves people for salvation. Or you might say He pre-selects them. And we want to discover that. In verse 6, 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. And you have given them to me. And then down in verse 10, all are my, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. God reserves, chosen, has selected people for salvation. That's a tough truth to grasp. It's tough and yet it's awesome when you realize it that God has selected you. In fact, if there's one truth that ought to make you stand straight up as a Christian and say, this is awesome, being a Christian, is the fact that God chose you before you were ever born. God picked you. God had you in mind. Listen to a few scriptures that bear this out. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen people, a people belonging to God. We say, okay, well, that's a nice thing, but when did God choose me? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. And then again in Romans 8, 30. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also glorified and justified. The terms, two good biblical terms, election and predestination. They might sound long, they might sound theological, but they simply mean that God made a predetermined choice about you before you were ever born. Now, if you try to understand that completely, let me give you a warning. You will reach a point in your mind where you'll just sort of blow a fuse. You'll think you've grasped it. Ooh, I see. And then you'll peer into it a little further, and it's like, you just can't handle it. You'll blow a fuse. Your mind can't totally understand it. Why? Because in this pre-selection, God has an attribute you and I do not have. Precognition or foreknowledge. He knows everything before it happens. You and I don't. Oh, you might make a prediction. You might say, I'm going to tell you what the weather's going to be like. They do this every night on television, and they're off, aren't they, usually? It's an educated guess. But it's different than knowing the situation in advance and having absolute foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge means to know in advance completely. It's not a prognosis like man would make it, but it involves absolute foreknowledge or omniscience. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says, Those that God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now I'm going to make a prediction this morning. Ready? The GOP will seize control of the Congress. You say, that's old news. That has happened. Okay, okay, okay. Let me make another prediction. There's going to be a baseball strike this year. Again, so what? We've heard that before. That's old news. Maybe you get your news a little bit late, Skip, but we already know that. It's old hat. It's history, past history. Well, in a sense, so is your salvation in the eyes and the mind of God. Having foreknowledge, knowing how you would respond to His pull of grace, God has selected you in advance because, after all, it's like a rerun to God. He's seen it already. Psalm 90 tells us we spend our years as a tale that is told. Part of God's omniscience, which means all-knowing, is God's foreknowledge, which means advanced knowing. He hears everything, sees everything, knows in advance everything. It's kind of awesome and even frightening to think about. Like the minister driving through town one night had a CB radio on, 
turned it on, and of course you hear conversations coming over the airways. He heard this trucker that was coming through town, and he was speaking rather in a vulgar tone, looking for a woman that he knew in that town of ill repute, a prostitute, trying to dial her in and come in, come in, are you still are you there? And finally he said, well, I guess she's not listening tonight. I guess she's not here. Maybe next time when I come through town. Just then the minister grabbed the CB and said, she might not be hearing you, but God can hear you. There was a long pause. Finally the trucker said, you know, I knew this CB had a great range, but I didn't know it was that good. Thinking, of course, that it was being broadcast to heaven. It's always being broadcast to heaven. God knows everything, hears everything, sees everything, and knows in advance all of the choices that you will make. Hence, He can say, you are chosen. It's God's choice, and yet there's human responsibility at the same time. Picture it this way. You are walking down a hallway. The hallway has many doors that you could go through, many directions in life you could travel down. Each has its own sign, and you contemplate, you're making your choices. You find a doorway that says, whosoever will, let him come. It's an invitation. Hmm, that's an interesting sign, you say. Whosoever will, let him come. Okay, I will. I'm going to open that door and walk in. And as you do, you discover a beautiful banquet room. Obviously, they're getting ready for a supper. You're delighted, you're amazed. You walk closer to that dinner table that has already been prepared in advance. Looking at all the name tags around the table, you come close to one that has your name on it. And you go, look at that. They reserved a place for me, as if they knew I was coming. And then the door slams behind you, the very door that said, whosoever will, let him come. And you read another side sign on the inside of that door now that says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Now that's odd. I chose to come in. And yet it says, I was chosen. And it's got my name prepared for me here. Now try to understand that. Try to explain that. You might lose your mind. To try to explain it away, you might lose your soul. These are truths that are held in tension that keep that bridge open. There was a a critical Calvinist that came to Charles Spurgeon, that great Victorian preacher, and and sometimes Calvinists can be quite critical, pointing fingers, being the gospel Gestapo on all doctrine. They came to uh, Spurgeon, and they said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, you are preaching the gospel to people who have never been predestined to be saved. Spurgeon replied, you're probably right. Please, just paint a yellow cross on the back of everyone who is predestined to be saved, and I'll preach only to them. In other words, we don't know whom God has chosen. We're called to preach the gospel to every creature. Not, excuse me, are you predestined? They go, what are you talking about? Like Spurgeon himself used to pray, Lord, save all the elect, then elect some more. We're called to preach it to everyone. So let's not polarize these issues. Let's bring them together, harmonize them. On one hand, don't picture man as just sort of kicking back, cruising, doing nothing at all while God irresistibly grabs and draws that person to himself. On the other hand, don't picture man groping for a hidden God. Both are true. God selects, God draws, but man responds to the drawing of God. You might look at it like the throwing of a rope to a drowning man. Does the throwing of the rope save a person? No. 
There has to be somebody at the end pulling it in. And there has to be someone grabbing a hold of it. So by election, God throws His rope out. And then you must grab a hold of that rope and come to shore. Both are true. Imagine how the disciples felt when, after leaving everything to follow Jesus Christ, leaving the nets, leaving their families, leaving their homes, making that choice, I'm going to forsake all and follow Jesus. Maybe even thinking, what a great choice I made for Jesus to turn to them and say, you didn't choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you that you would bring forth fruit. What do you mean you chose us? I was the one that left my nets. Yeah, I gave you the power, and I knew you'd do it, and I chose you to do it before the foundations of the world. Now, we could argue these truths, but uh, the great truth is God picked you. Enjoy that. You're on His winning team. He picked you if you're a believer. Now, you'd say, well, how do I know I'm chosen? Answer, have you responded to Christ? If you've responded to Christ, if you have received His forgiveness, if you have received His Son for the penalty of your sins, you will discover that God has chosen you. Well, I haven't done that yet. Okay? Why don't you do that? Well, I don't know. Uh, Maybe God didn't choose me. This is not fair. This is discrimination. I'm going to file a lawsuit against heaven. Maybe God didn't pick me. Well, I'll prove you wrong. Receive Christ today. You'll find that God has already chosen you. Well, maybe I don't want to do that. Okay, maybe God hasn't chosen you. Well, it's not fair. Sure it's fair. Election and predestination has never precluded or stopped anyone from coming. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. It's not like you're going to come to him, Lord, I receive you. No, you can't come. Your name isn't on my list. Whosoever will let him comes, and when you come, you find out he has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do I understand it completely? No. Am I confusing a lot of you? Probably. Both of those truths are in the Scripture. You are selected in advance. The responsibility is yours. I love what Spurgeon said. I'm glad God chose me before I was born. He probably never would have picked me after I was born, seeing the way I am. God knew all about you, however, in advance, exactly how you would be. And that's important to realize when God picked you. He didn't pick you when He saw you as you were open now to His Word, wanting to receive Christ, wanting to obey Him. It's not like God said, oh, there He is. Look at Him. He's irresistible. I've got to choose Him. He's just so wonderful. I can't pass this one up. This is a good deal. God picked you before you were ever born before the foundations of the earth. Now, you might wonder at God's choice. You might know some Christians, perhaps sitting close to you right now, and you think, why did God pick that person? I never would have picked that person. Of course, we say that sometimes when people get married. What did she see in him anyway? What did God see in that person to choose that person? I don't know, but I'm not knocking it. I'm not bucking the system. I can wonder at it. I can marvel at it. It's best to enjoy it. God chose me. Great. I'm not going to go. No, why did you pick me? Hey, just be quiet. Go along with it. Enjoy what God has done and is doing. So the Father reserves. They were yours, Jesus said. You gave them to me. Secondly, as a part of this discipleship process, God selects, God reserves, but then the Son, Jesus, reveals. 
the Father reserves, the Son reveals God's truth and who He is to you, to us. Look uh, in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given to me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The word manifested means to reveal, to show forth, or to demonstrate. And what did Jesus come to do? To manifest God's name. What that means, in, in ancient times, a person's name meant his reputation. Who the person is fully was embodied by his name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's not just the uttering of his name. It's all that he is, his reputation, his character. I have come, Jesus said, to manifest, to reveal, to show forth the reputation, the attributes, the character of God. Or you might even say, to clear God's name. To clear his name. Say, so what do you mean by that? Simply this. God, throughout history, has had a bad rap. People have so misconceived him or misrepresented him that people begin to picture a God that really never existed. It's their own concept of God. Very different from the true God that Jesus came to reveal. Example. At the time of Jesus, there were the Greeks who actually predated Jesus. The Greeks had the idea that there were many gods. All of them were angry. I must placate the gods. I never know where I stand with them. They might be happy with me one day. They might hate me the next. I've got to just watch how I walk. I never know how I stand before them. And in their own mythology, the Greeks, as an example, had the story of the god named Prometheus, who took pity upon man, saw man's plight, and decided to give fire as a gift to man to warm himself. When Zeus, sort of the big cheese of all the gods, found out what Prometheus had done in being so nice to men, took Prometheus, chained him up on a rock in the Adriatic Sea, and had the vultures come by and tear out his liver. So that's the idea the Greeks had. The gods are angry. Then there were the Romans. The Romans inherited the polytheism of the Greeks, but they also worshipped their emperors. Caesar Augustus was the first one they actually worshipped as being a god. And being an emperor, if you know much about them, they were very whimsical. They could change with the wind as well. You never really knew where you stood with the emperor. Then there were the Jews, who though they worshipped the true and the living God, they believed that God was distant, removed, never intimate or close, so that you could address Him as Father. You just better be holy, you better be just, you better be upright, or God might just take His thumb and squish you. They would never say the name of God. They thought the name of God is too holy for it to even fall from our lips. That's why to this day we don't know how to pronounce the name of God in the Old Testament. Is it Yahweh? Is it Yehovah? We don't know because they never said it. They only would write the vowels, never the consonants. Y-H-V-H. When they came in the scriptures to the name of God, they would simply bow and say Hashem, the name. But they would never say the name. These were the concepts of God. Jesus came to set the record straight. God is powerful, but God is gentle. God is all-knowing, but God is all-loving. God will one day judge the earth, but He would rather be your Savior. Jesus came to manifest the name of God, the character of God, the reputation to His disciples. Now you might ask yourself, 
What is my relationship with God like? How do I picture God? Do I picture the God that Jesus came to reveal? The living and the true God as He really is? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or is my relationship to God sort of like the Greeks or like the Jews? Very distant, removed. I always think God's mad at me. He's angry with me. Is your relationship far or is your relationship intimate? I love the story of the Roman emperor parading through Rome in his chariot with his wife. He had just conquered an area. And as was typical among the Romans, they would have the spoils of war and the prisoners in chains and the emperor would be there sort of gloating in his victory. His security guards were there with spears and swords guarding so that none of the crowd could get in to the king. Just then a little boy darted toward the king's chariot, was stopped by a Roman soldier. The soldier said, son, don't you realize that that's the king in that chariot? You just don't run up to him. The little boy said, he might be your king, but he's my dad. It was the emperor's son. The emperor's son had a different relationship with the emperor than the people or the soldiers. God revealed himself through Jesus Christ. He manifested the Father, the true and the living God as he really is. Look at verse 8. We see how he did this. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them They have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The words that Jesus spoke were the words the Father gave to him to speak. Listen to John chapter 14, verse 10. Jesus says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. The words that I say to you, they are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. When Jesus spoke his words... They were the words of the Father. But Jesus didn't just come with good teachings, nice words. As some people will say, well, the words of Jesus, they are good philosophy, good to live by. Uh, Like the words of Plato, or the words of Buddha, or the words of Muhammad, or many other philosophies. Jesus himself was the word, or you might say the final word. God's final word was in Jesus Christ. He has nothing more to say to the world. There's not another prophet, another way, a super highway with 16 lanes. Take your pick. We'll all go to God. Jesus is the final word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In times past, God spoke in many ways to prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken once and for all through His Son, whom He made heir of all things. God spoke through Jesus Christ. That's His final word. Now, God is speaking through His Son to some of you, to all of us, actually. Are we listening to His voice? Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice. They won't follow another. They won't listen to another. As Jesus is speaking the words of life to you, are you listening? Are you tuned into the right voice? You know, there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of people on CB radios. There's a lot of advertisement on television, on the radio, songs, philosophies, talk shows. Are you listening to the voice of Jesus Christ? Is that voice changing you? Maybe you're like the man who went to his doctor to get a checkup. He couldn't hear all that well. He wanted his hearing checked. As the doctor was examining his patient and took out the hearing aid out of his right ear, his 
hearing improved immediately. You see, he'd been wearing the hearing aid in the wrong ear for 20 years. That's a misdiagnosis. Imagine, 20 years I could have been listening and it's been blocked. Here, I've been turning it up all the time. All it did is close it up, distort it. Some of you are listening to the wrong voices when you should be listening to the Lord. Now, the Father reserves, the Son reveals. Before we go on to the next part of discipleship, you and I have the same privilege that Jesus had while on the earth. This is what I mean by that. He came to reveal His Father. As Christians, followers of Jesus, we have the privilege to also reveal God to people. Part of following is manifesting. It's not just all receiving truth. God has a ministry for you. And part of being a disciple is to be one who shows forth the truth to people. One day Jesus told his disciples, I am the light of the world. I'm sure they said, well, that's right. We agree. We receive that. On another occasion, Jesus said, now you are the light of the world. Because Jesus, revealing God, was now going up to his Father. And those who followed him were called now to reveal who God is to a lost and dying world. You're the light of the world. I sort of picture the disciples going, me? Uh, Peter? Us? You think we're going to do this? We can't pull this off. Oh, no, no. You are the light of the world. You reflect the light that I am showing to this lost and dying world. Now, what kind of a message are people getting as you reveal God? As they hear your words, as they watch what you do, what kind of revelation of God are they getting? How are you manifesting His name to people around you? Now, look at verse 8 one more time. We see this third phase as Jesus prays it in discipleship, and that is the follower responds. The Father reserves people. Jesus reveals truth to people, but we have to respond. I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then up in verse 6, Jesus said, I revealed your name, and they have kept your word. So there's three things that we respond. We receive truth. We believe it, which means to grab a hold of it, cling to it, apply it. And then we keep it. That is, we behave accordingly. First of all, we receive it. We believe it. That's really a good definition of a disciple. What is a disciple? It's someone who listens, receives, and believes the truth about God through Jesus Christ. However... Why was it then that though Jesus spoke to multitudes of people, not all of them had the same response? I mean, there, there were people who actually heard the sermons of Jesus. Talk about an opportunity. Imagine hearing Jesus give you a message. There were thousands of people on the hills around Galilee when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't just the twelve that heard them. It wasn't just Jesus' disciples that heard. Multitudes heard the truth, saw the miracles. In Jerusalem, at Solomon's porch, there weren't just disciples. There were Pharisees, scribes, other leaders, many people who heard the same things as the disciples. But they were not disciples. Why? What's the difference? The difference is not in the teaching. They heard and were taught the same thing. It's in the condition of the heart. You see, if your condition, the condition of your heart is hard, you can hear the best teaching, the best truth, 
and it's impervious to you. Because Jesus said that the heart is like soil. The seed is planted within the hearts. Some harden their hearts, some open their hearts. Some let the seed go down deep and bring forth fruit. Others go, eh, big deal. You can hear truth and harden your heart. You can see changes in people's lives, and yet it doesn't affect you because the condition of your heart can be hardened, and that is your choice. The followers respond because they not only hear, but they're listening to receive it. And it becomes a part of their very being. Remember, Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Not just what you hear, be selective what you hear, but as you hear the truth, take heed how you hear. How you hear is just as important many times as what you hear. You can hear the truth and it can just bounce off and have no effect. Now, we receive the truth when we hear the gospel. We decide to accept and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We, to go back to our analogy, grab the handle to that door that says, Whosoever will, let him come. I'm going to respond. I'm going to open the door. We come in. We're saved. We've accepted. We've responded. But that's just the beginning. Did you know that Christians should be continually in the reception mode When we hear the truth, we receive it because, let's face it, there's areas in our lives that need to be changed, right? Have you ever read the Bible before? You've read it many times, but all of a sudden, it's like the Holy Spirit slams it gently across the walls of your heart. You go, ooh, wow, I need that. That's for me. Suddenly, there's a reception of that truth, and that truth begins to change you. So as we listen to the Bible being taught, as we read it, read it open. The Bible is the only book you don't have to have a filter on when you read. A disciple didn't say, well, I know Jesus said that. I don't know if if that's true. I can't buy that one. Oh, gee, forget that one. Throw that out. Oh, I like this one. I'll underline that one. It's all true. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? You knew that they heard, but they weren't listening. They're not in their head. Oh, right, great. Oh, yeah, great. You didn't hear what I just said? I just got in a car accident. All right, great, great, great. That's neat. (laughs) They're not really paying attention. Imagine how God feels. As we hear, as we read, we skim. We might say, amen, amen. Yeah, right, that's great. What do you say? A disciple will open up, receive, and then believe. The way you treat your Bible, I would say, is the way you treat Jesus. It's His words. He's given them to us. He has something to say to us. How do we treat it? Are we open to it or are we close to it? And then finally in verse 6, behaving. We receive or we respond to the truth by believing it, but then doing it, keeping it. Uh, He says, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So here's the disciples. They listened, they received it, they believed it, and they did it. It's not enough to admire the Word, to underline the Word, to memorize the Word. The next phase is to keep it. Okay, yeah, that's for me. I'm going to obey it. A disciple is not just one who learns. It's one who lives what he learns. He behaves according to the truth. There's a great saying. I love it. It's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you land. That counts. You can go, yeah, amen, that's great preaching. Oh, that's good, great message. The Word of God spoke. 
and then just completely categorize it, push it out of your life. Well, now it's Monday morning, it's work, things are different here. I live a little differently here. You keep the Word. Some of us perhaps are like little five-year-old Christy, who was an angel when company was over. She had the best manners. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. But as soon as company left, she was nodding, disobedient, sassy. And her mother said, Christy, why is it that only when company's here you, you act so nicely, but you're naughty when they're, when they're gone? She said, well, Mommy, you put out your company silver only when company's here. You know, what do you say to that? Oh, okay, yeah. Maybe we put our best behavior on only when we're around God's company. Oh, it's church time. Get the Bible, look holy. Come to church. People are looking at me. Let me open the door for my wife. (laughs) Nobody's looking. Slam it on her. (laughs) Do you have sort of a Christian format that you assume when you're around God's company, other Christians? They have received it and they have kept your word. Somebody said, loving God is not an emotional goosebump. It's selfless obedience to the words of Christ. It's not just, I felt good today. So that's just the beginning. Now we receive and we apply the truth. That was James' point. Faith without works is dead. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So going back to the beginning, you know, maybe that Jordan Consulting Group was accurate from a worldly standpoint. These 12 disciples that you've chosen, oh, they're sort of failures. The truth is they were reserved by God. God was revealed through Jesus Christ's words to them, and they responded and became effective. And God has chosen you. God has picked you. And if God has chosen you, the evidence is that you'll believe, you'll receive, and you'll behave. A lion met a tiger as they drank beside the pool. Said the tiger, tell me why you're roaring like a fool. That's not foolish, said the lion with a twinkle in his eyes. They call me king of beasts because I advertise. A rabbit heard them talking, ran home like a streak. He thought he'd try the lion's plan, but his roar was just a squeak. A fox came to investigate and had lunch back in the woods. So when you advertise, my friend, be sure you've got the goods. You might roar like a Christian and have all the right vocabulary, but a true disciple, one that shows that he has been selected by God, receives the teachings, the words, believes them, is changed by them. And that's why discipleship doesn't end when we say, Jesus, come into my heart. That's just the beginning. It now continues that process all through life. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the words of life, even though this is a prayer of Jesus to you. Such insight, Lord, you've given us. As we hear the very heart of Jesus expressing himself to you, we learn that we're not an afterthought. We just didn't come along without your plan. By your grace, you allowed us to come into this world. We have come to you. We have responded to your truth. And yet we discover that we've been chosen in you before the foundation of the world. Hard to understand, awesome to enjoy. Lord, I pray 
that as Jesus reveals who you really are to us, that it would be our distinct privilege to manifest your name to people around us. Lord, finally, we pray for those who have come this morning. They've heard your voice this morning, speaking to their hearts, drawing them to Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would choose to open the door that says, whosoever will, let him come. Opening the door for you to come into their lives and change it. Opening the door for freedom and salvation. Only to discover that you've been drawing them all along. The rope's been out. You've selected them. But convinced, Lord, by your love that that choice must be made.